start our new series this morning, Need Milk. Here's why this is going to be a blast. Um, a few weeks, well, a few months ago, I was talking to some people, and they're like, you know, I really, I love at Grace Church how we deconstruct. We, we question everything we know. We try to make sure that we are approaching God in the most healthy way possible. That's such an important thing to do. But sometimes I wish, uh, I wish, Pastor, that you would just teach us the Bible every once in a while, you know? Like, stop telling us, you know, that all these things that, that we think are wrong. And every once in a while, tell us what to think. Now, I don't like to tell you what to think for this reason. Because when someone tells you what to think, you stop doing what you stop thinking, right? So that's why in Grace Church we hardly ever do that practice, but a few times it is important for us to teach certain things. There are things we call the basics, right? The, the Bible is one of the most frustrating books because it has a lot of gray area. Um, who do we have today who loves the black and white, meaning things are what they are? There's black and white. I, yep, yep, absolutely. I already know who you are. I could point you out. You love parts of the Bible, and you will hate the majority of the Bible because the Bible lives in what we call the gray area, the in-between, the color that happens when the white and the black begin to blur, right? There's that gray area. But there are areas in the Bible that are not gray. There are actually things that are black and white that are straightforward. And so uh, the author of Hebrews, he gives us a few things that he believes are the black and white. I'm not sure if you guys caught this, uh, the opening line. But basically, in true form, this, this author is kind of scolding these uh, Christians, these believers. He's telling them, surely by this time you should be teachers, but you're not even close to being good students. How about that? How's that feel? You should be eating food, solid food. Okay, how about this? What is your favorite solid food? Come on, somebody. He's on keto. You all know that. Steak. Anybody else? Pizza, anybody else? Come on, I mean, like, how old are we, like five? It is the South? How about something more interesting? Sushi, here we go. Anyone else? Thai food, did you say heaven? I thought you said manna. I was like, oh, man. Whoa. Direct, direct, direct delivery every morning. Beats Amazon every time. Well, that's impressive. Manna. Salmon. Okay, that's nice and healthy. Imagine, okay, imagine what would happen if you took an infant, an infant child, okay? Who's ever held an infant before? Anybody? Okay. Imagine that infant, and I want you to take a T-bone steak. Try feeding it to that infant. Just, just imagine it. Try force-feeding it. Now, I mean, okay, you don't want to take it too far. That's abuse. But you get the idea, right? Trying to feed something that is good for that baby. It's good. It's nutritious. It, and, of course, everyone in the room who's on keto knows how nutritious it really is. The bone marrow on that thing. That baby needs to eat the bones. It's the healthiest part. You know? Okay. I think I'm losing you. I'm losing you, right? Now, this baby, even though we know that this piece of meat is healthy, has everything that body needs, the baby is not mature enough to take it in, correct? So what does the baby need? Milk. Need milk? Oh, you see where we're going, don't you? Okay. There is a space for us as we grow with Christ where we are ready for the really healthy stuff, the stuff that will help us grow and mature and go to places and do things we couldn't do without it. There is, there is spiritual food for us. 
that makes us mature, that strengthens and matures us and grows us and takes us farther. But you have to get to a place where you can even stomach it, where you can handle it, where you have the ability to chew on that thing. One of the hardest things about Grace Church is, is that I really hate the milk. Amen? I don't like milk. Who likes milk in here? Okay, all you weirdos. All right. Now, I like ice cream. Does that count? Anybody? Cheese, maybe? But milk by itself is kind of boring. I mean, there are people who, it seems like teenagers especially, like they love to just down gallons of milk. That, to me, sounds like waterboarding. Like, it just sounds like torture. Like, why would you make anyone drink this bland? This is gross, right? Like, why would you do that? I don't understand why you would do that. I want to move on to the good stuff. And so, for me, the things I like food-wise are a little bit crazy, you know. Spiritually, I'm the same way. I want to get to the good stuff. Why waste time with milk when there's this whole world of food? Now, uh, when you guys take vacations, what is the first thing that you think about when you guys go on vacation? Anybody, holler it out. What's the first thing you think about? Food? Okay, I'll be honest. I don't care about any of the other answers. Only one I cared about was food. We plan our days around food. She plans what she wants to go do, and I plan the area of the city we're going to be in so we can eat at the place I want to eat at. That's how I vacation. I plan around food. Why sit in your house and waste calories on milk when you could eat all of the world of food? There's so much amazing variety of food. Why in the world? And, I mean, and for all you people who said pizza and burgers are your favorite, my Lord, we're going to help you. We're going to save you and minister to you this morning. There is so much more to this world than burgers and pizza, Alma, Arkansas. We don't need another pizza joint or burger joint in this entire city. We don't need it. I don't like wasting our time on milk because there's so much out there with God. The creator of all things, the one who was before and after, why would we waste our time with the milk stuff when we have all of that to get to? But the one thing that uh, with this series... I, I kind of have to remember is that milk is very important. There is a, a space for us to mature to that place. So what we're going to do in this series, which I'm really excited about, basically the author of Hebrews is scolding him, saying, you guys are such spiritual babies that I've got to teach you all the basics. I've got to feed you bottles so that one day I can take you to go experience Thai food. Because if I give you Thai food right now, Things might not go very well. we got to work your way up to it, baby. That's what we got to do. And so what we're going to do is each week in this series, we're going to take one of those baby bottles, and we're going to enjoy that baby bottle. So what is the first one that he talks about? The first one that the author of Hebrews tells us about, the first baby bottle for us to enjoy this morning, for all of you guys who love milk and lactose, we're going to talk about the deeds that lead to death, and faith in God. See, isn't that boring? Man, but I figured we should do this because it's, it's going to be a challenge for me to be interested. And so I, I accept that challenge. Let's do this. If you guys have your, your Bibles, uh, let's open back up to Hebrews 5.11 as I knock my microphone off. Let's go to uh, Hebrews 5.11. I'm going to start here. It says this. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you, meaning it's hard to teach you anything. Because you no longer try to understand. I want you to sit there for a second. Before we teach the the basics, before we get to the bottle, I want to explain you something. 
I've said this multiple times here at Grace Church. The largest, most alarming, most severe sign that your spiritual health is in danger is this. You no longer try to understand. I'll translate. You've stopped learning. You've stopped growing. Here's the biggest one. You've stopped asking questions. What happens when you stop trying to understand something? Come on. You stop asking what? When you're around a five-year-old who wants to understand everything, what do they ask you? What is the most dangerous sign in your spiritual life is when you stop asking what? Questions. This is a dangerous thing. Unfortunately, this is the majority of us in this room right now. We have stopped asking questions. What was the last question you had about God that kept you up at night? It could be a good, it could be a bad thing. What's the last just thing about God that you had to know? What's the last thing in the Scriptures that you just you could not understand and you needed someone to explain it to you? What's the last experience you had with God that you did not understand and you wanted to understand? What was the last time that some need to find out more about God moved you? Sitting still in the Christian faith means you are sick. If you think back to last year, if you think about the place you were with God, if you are in a similar place this year, you're not stuck, you're sick. Amen, hallelujah. That one gets the crowd going every time. That's a winner every time. The first sign that we are immature is that we've stopped trying to understand. There, the, the forward motion, the questions, the growth, the... When you take... Uh, I was painting a house the other week, and uh, the kids came over, and the, the first thing they did was they sprinted to explore every room of this ginormous house, right? When you stop exploring, when you stop searching things out, when I open the door to my monstrous house... I'm being sarcastic. My kids do not sprint to search out every inch of the house. Why? They think they already got it. Little do they know. No, no they got it all figured out. <laughs> there, are, there are places for us when we lose that wonder. This is a sign. We're sick. And so the first thing we have to learn about this, about immaturity, is that the ultimate sign of that immaturity, of that spiritual sickness, is we've stopped trying to understand. Even worse than stop trying to understand, we begin to resist. We begin to fight questions. When, when you've been around those little kids, little five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and they're asking you questions, what's your response? After you answer about three or four, what do you do? Stop asking questions. We're going to play the quiet game right now. <laughs> hey, what's your favorite song? Let's turn it on. And all the way up. Because I don't want to talk about those things. It only takes my seven-year-old, even my five-year-old, it only takes them about three questions to get somewhere that I don't know the answer fully to. So, Dad, you've told me that that's a sun, right? Yes. So, are all the plants spinning around that? Yes. Why? I don't want to understand. I'm done with that. I, I've already had the classes and the tests. So I say, Google it. 
You see how this works. And so after we get this, we move on to, uh, we skip down to verse 14 here in chapter 5. But solid food is only for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I want to tell you something this morning. Only the immature in Christ think it's a simple matter to figure out what is good and what is evil. If you think it is so easy to say, oh, that's bad and that's good, here's a good guy, here's a bad guy, this person's with God, this person's not. If you think it's that simple, here's another wake up for you. You're not there yet. You're missing it. Only the mature have figured out how hard it is to discern what is really good and what is really evil, what is really, who's really on God's side, who's really not on God's side. This takes time and work. The mature who have, by constant use, meaning they have disciplined themselves, they've taken the mature things of God and they've begun to apply it every single moment of their lives. And this continual process has trained them to learn this word we call discernment. These are two things that are very important as we go into this. All right, so putting all of the pre-work behind us, going into the first one, okay, the, the first basics. The first baby bottle, for all of us who are immature, we haven't grown to that place yet, is this. Understanding works that lead to death and faith in God. How many times have you, have you been taught about that? Who here thinks that works that lead to death is sin? Everyone's so afraid to raise their hand. I ain't raising my hand. No, he's tricked me so many times. I'm not going to do that. It's hard to get you guys to raise hands nowadays. You know that? But about four years ago, you guys raised hands for anything. The words being used here in the Greek are not talking about sins. Sins can be thrown in there. What they're talking about are deeds or actions, a way of life. They even, um, the word for rituals is even used in here. Meaning there are all these ways of life that people believe take you to life. But in the end, you come to the same place everyone else does, which is what? Death. It's his way of saying there's only one way to life. And the first basic way of learning the Christian foundations, the first bottle of the faith that we learn, is what is the path that takes us to life and not to death. It's not just about doing bad. It's like even there, there are even good things. There are good and great paths that will not take you to life. They will take you to death. And so the first bottle of the faith is this. What is the path that takes you to life? Now, in the last series, do you know what you don't know? We talked a little about spirit. We talked about eternity. We talked about the big things, right? That there is a, a place that everyone in this room is on this train, and we're all going to one destination. We've never been there. We don't know what it looks like. We have no clue, but we're all going there, right? And this is the end of the line. We call it death. Whatever the life after this one is, if there is one, that's what's coming for us. And we're all moving there, right? And so the question, the first question of the Christian faith is, as we're all moving towards the end of this existence, the first question of the Christian faith is, how do we go to life after this? Because all other paths, all other trains take us to death. How do we get to that, that life? And of course, the author attached trusting in God, what that looks like, faith in God. So here, here's the first question for you this morning on this topic. What does salvation look like to you? What does the path to life, salvation, what does the path to life look like for you? Try to picture it in your head. If, if someone asked you, if, imagine a nine-year-old came to you and said, 
What does salvation look like? How do I get to salvation? What's your answer to that? Now, all of us live in the post-Billy Graham era, which means almost every single human being in this room has heard a form of the gospel that was crafted by Billy Graham. So most of you actually have an answer. There's an answer that almost all of you have that's kind of uniform, we'll say that. If you could spell it out, what does that salvation look like for you? What does salvation look like for you? Now, here's the next step we're going to do. As Christians, what does the Christian faith teach us about salvation? What does salvation look like according to the scriptures of our faith? Now, as I've been talking about Hebrews, I've been talking about the author. Um, if, you, if you guys believe that the Apostle Paul wrote that, that's awesome. Uh, the first people who, who formed the Bible believe that too. Uh, as of today, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's kind of a confusing thing. There are people who believe that uh, in the old days, we thought it was Paul. And I say old days, I mean like, uh, like 1,500 years ago. We believed it was the Apostle Paul. Now we don't really know who it was because the language is so different. They don't do anything that Paul does. They have completely different ideas than Paul does. Hebrews brings us a very different answer to salvation than Romans. If you take Hebrews and Romans and you line them up, how they talk about salvation is dramatically different. So if it is Paul, then Paul really had a confusing moment when he wrote Hebrews. If we had to guess, we think it was Phoebe, a woman who wrote Hebrews. And she put a, a male surname on it because, of course, we know back then no one's listened to a woman, right? And so she gave us a really interesting approach. And so she talks about salvation through the Jewish law. She tries to teach us about what salvation looks like from the perspective of a Jew. If I'm trying to talk about the path to life from someone who understands Torah, what would it look like? So as we talk about it this way, I want to say this about it. The Christian faith, salvation to the Christian faith, first and foremost, is embracing that salvation comes from outside of you and your control. If you're taking notes, you need that one. To be someone who believes in Christian salvation, here's what you believe. You believe fundamentally that salvation comes outside of you, meaning outside of the resources you have, outside of your intellect, outside of your choices, outside of your will, outside of your control. It comes from outside of you and outside of anything that you could control. Manipulation or planning or plotting, scheming, conniving, it's outside of you. Salvation comes from somewhere outside of my bubble. It doesn't come from me. Now, what's interesting is this. If we began to go around the room and I began to kind of pull out of you with questions, what your salvation looks like, we'd have a lot of different answers. The first one would be like a moralism, meaning you believe salvation comes from doing things that are good and not doing things that are bad, right? We call that moralism. We believe that salvation comes to people who do the good things and not to people who do the bad things. Have you ever thought about that? What do you teach your children? Good things come to people who do what? And bad things come to people who do what? Moralism. There we go, right? Because you're trying to teach your kids to be good moral people, right? Amen? Uh, studies show us this is the number one reason that people come to church, is they want their kids to become moral agents, to know good and bad. Now, with all you guys like, no, it's much more spiritual than that. Awesome. For us, it might be. But in this country, in the U.S., the number one reason people go to church is not about them. They honestly are not listening to me when they come in this room. All they care about is their kids to learn to be good people who don't do bad things. 
Think about that. It's one of the number one reasons that, that people come to church. To teach their kids to be moral. If you do good things, you get what? Good. If you do bad things, you get what? So with our kids, when our kids do the good things, do we, do we praise them? Because they did what? They did good things. And because they did something, they get what? Good things. When they do bad things, we say, you made a bad choice. Who's heard the D's from the deans, right? Uh, disobedient, destructive. What's the rest of them? Dishonest, disrespect, right? Deceitful. All the D's. Those D's are awesome, by the way. They, they work really well. You've done one of the D's, dude. I'm sorry. You chose a bad D. And for the bad D, there's consequences for the bad D, right? This, this system that, that we live in, right? We have, we have courts, which are based on what? Your deeds, right? You do good things, do you end up going to prison? Hopefully not. The idea is that bad people who do bad things get bad things. Make sense? Moralism. Does your salvation look like people who do good things get, get good things? That's, that's the majority of us in this room. Does your... Salvation look like mental assent. Who believes that salvation is mental assent? Of course, no one puts their hands up. All right. The majority of you actually believe this. Here's the idea. What if salvation comes from having, thinking the right things about God? Everyone goes, oh, that sounds a little bit better. How about this? Do I have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do Christians fight over thinking about God? Do Christians start... New churches with new names because of how they think about God, because they believe salvation is about how they think about God. It's called mental assent. We're saved if we think the right things. If I believe the right things about God, I'm going to get into heaven. Amen, hallelujah. How about that? Who likes that? Everyone looks very uncomfortable. It's okay, relax. I will offend everyone, I promise. It's okay. How about achievement? Achievement salvation, meaning only those who apply the most effort, the most emotion, the best choices, the ones who pour themselves, the ones who love God fervently, those are the ones who are going to ascend the holy hill. This is the Old Testament version of personal salvation. Who may ascend the holy hill of God? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, and does not give his soul to to an idol. Does that sound good to you? The person who has clean hands, who, who hasn't done the bad things, pure heart, who doesn't, who's not just trying to use God, does that sound right to you? You guys are not going to raise hands or clap or say anything, are you? Don't do it. It's a trap. <laughs> there are all forms of salvation. In the times of Christ, when, when Jesus was walking the earth, the, the most dominant forms of salvation... You had the idea with the Pharisees. If we stay pure, if we stay holy, if we stay moral, we do the right things, we please God, then God's going to take care of us. At the Sadducees, if we go and if we collect all of the power and resources and money that we can, we will be saved. Had the Herodians, if we go and we get as much 
political power, we can save ourselves. We can make this world the right place. We can get all the bad people out of power, put the good people in, and we're going to save the world. Then you've got the zealots. None of that political stuff matters. We've got to use force. Get the swords out, clean everyone out who's evil, and then we're going to have a good world. Then you've got the Essenes. We have to go start a commune with Pastor Zach. We're all going to go out into the woods. We're going to get away from all these, these other people, and we're going to be true followers of God. Pastor Zach's Julian Essene. You should tell him that. And here comes the gospel of God through Christ. Salvation does not come from your acts, from your good deeds. Salvation does not come from your amassed wealth or power. Salvation does not come through politics. Salvation does not come through the sword. Salvation does not come from withdrawing from the world. Salvation comes from one place. Trusting in the Son of God. And everyone goes, that doesn't sound nearly as fun. Remember this. The foundation, the most basic baby bottle of the Christian faith is this. To be a Christian is to accept that salvation comes from the outside of you. Now that can look like a million different things, but that's the start of it. The reason that we want salvation to come from being pure and holy, the reason that Pentecostalism and holiness is awesome, is because it makes you feel like you're going to be saved. The reason that Judaism is so appealing, there are pastors who, uh, there's a book I read last year, a pastor who, who left the church and he, he ran away from all of the stuff he thought was pla- fake and plastic in the church. So many of the things that he wrote, I was able to connect to in a very deep level. And his, his solution to that was to go become a Jew. I couldn't connect to that one the same way. <laughs> and his solution was the reason that Judaism feels right it's because now there's something in my hands i i can do this we all talk about how bad the law is i'll say this when when preachers and pastors talk about the old testament laws as if it's bad i promise you this you would enjoy the law better than grace because in grace you're not in control you're not in control of what you get you're not in control of what the person next to you get you're not in control of what the worst human being on the earth gets you have no control over that But under the law, you have all the control. What I get, the good things I get, are based on what I put into it. It's the most American salvation possible. I get what I deserve. Capitalist salvation. Amen? Hallelujah? Anybody? We don't need that socialist grace. Get that out of here. Come on. You have to laugh with me. Come on. It'll be more fun if you loosen up. We... we, you, we get what we deserve. I can follow these rules. I can do that. If salvation comes from mental ascent, okay, I can study, I can think, and I can hear podcasts and read books, and I can, you know, jump into scriptures. I can do that work to get there. I can do it. It's in my hands. I can do that. If it's achievement, then I'll pour in more hours in my prayer closet. I'll be at more conferences. I'll learn all the spiritual gifts. I'll have all the encounters. I will get to that place with God, even if no one else goes into those deep inner courts. Anyone from the extreme charismatic movements with like the inner courts concepts? I'm going to go from the outer court. I'm going to walk all the way into the bed chambers of Jesus. Anybody? You got, okay, well, that exists, I promise you, by the way. 
promise you, everyone's like, no, that wasn't me. I'm the mental ascent guy. That's me. You know? <laughs> All of these are in your hands, but grace takes it out of your hands. If you want to talk about salvation purely from a scriptural reading, meaning from a surface level reading, if we're not going to do any kind of deep dive into the scriptures, the most coherent concept of salvation from a surface level reading of the scriptures is predestination. You cannot get away from the book of Romans and how they talk about the way people are going to be saved by grace alone. This is the work of God, not of man, that he would boast. This is not in man's hands, this is in God's hands. This doesn't show the value of man, this shows the value of God. If you grew up Arminian, uh, Assemblies of God, something like that, you should be crawling in your skin right now. Anybody? No? Okay. Do you guys have any idea of like the, the forms of salvation that you guys were taught? Because I should have stepped on pretty much everyone's toes by now. Anybody? Here's what the faith tells us. Here's the baby bottle of faith. That faith, the Christian faith, the Christian salvation, is salvation through story. Salvation comes via, it's transported to us, it's brought to us by a, a story. Salvation by a story. Sounds childlike, doesn't it? Now, you guys have all heard this verse. You guys have all kind of learned about this thing. You guys have all heard this in churches and the Roman road. If you guys want to go to Romans 10, uh, Booth, I apologize, I did not warn you. Uh, Romans 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will uh, descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want you to look a little bit deeper into what's taking place here. If you read this at a very surface level reading, it takes us to all the same places we just talked about, all the different forms of salvation. It's mental sense, thinking the right thing about God. Oh, it's deeds and works. If I, if I do the right, it's achievement. If I say the right words, then I'll get the right things from God. If I, if I clean the house the right way for my parents, then I'll get the sucker I want. Awesome. I want you to understand something here. Christian salvation. as two sides of the coin. The, the foundation of Christian salvation is this. We are trusting in the nature of God. Now this nature of God concept comes from the story of Christ. This is, this is the whole thing inside this verse. This verse is a very deep verse. We're kind of slowly unpacking it. This whole idea of believing that, that, that the Father raised the Son from the dead, this is all encapsulated in all of the Scriptures and all the concepts of Jesus and the stories of His life and ministry. It's saying that we trust the story about God. It's saying this. That whole verbiage about believing in your heart is this. I trust the story. I believe that the God of the entire universe is like this story says He is. I believe God is like this. I trust in this type of God enough that I'm going to now begin to relate to this God in this way. 
Don't get fixated on the confessing, on the words or the speaking. That's not the crux of this statement. Because remember, as you go through Hebrews and Romans, they talk about salvation looks all different ways, not just saying prayers. They talk about certain acts of obedience, certain acts of sin, certain concepts, mental sin. They go through all the different circles. So don't, this is not the only verse about salvation. It's not about the speaking. What's important is that from this relational trust, I believe God is like this. Because I do, I'm now going to relate to God in this way. The whole confessing Jesus is Lord, it's not about the words, it's about the relationship. Meaning, this God goes from being someone else's God, Old Testament language, the God of Isaac and Jacob, and this God becomes my God. The word that Lord is so crucial here is because Lord is the most important word that makes sense of this idea in this culture. What they're saying here, if you want to go into Greek, what they're saying is this. I believe this God is like this. And so now this God is now my Caesar. This God is now my emperor. This God is now my president. This God is now my Lord. You have to translate it. I can call you my best friend all day long. Hey, friend, you're you're my best friend, man. How's your day going? I can text you. Spend time around you, tell stories to you, all that good stuff, right? But until I believe that you are the type of person that I truly want to trust as my best friend, when I believe that you are that type of person, something's going to change in me. When I believe that your nature is like that, you are that type of person, all of a sudden I'm not just going to call you a name, I'm not just going to, you know, <laughs> have the secret handshake with you. I'm just going to text you. Now I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Now I'm going to trust you. Now I'm going to interact. I'm going to have a relationship. I'm going to relate to you in a certain way that I don't relate to anyone else. I can call Nisa my wife all day long. I can put a ring on. We can have a ceremony. We can even have kids. But until I think she's that type of person, the fact she will only know that I believe she's that type of person when my relating to her changes, when I begin to treat her as if she's my wife. God, I can speak words about God, read about God, I can have the mental sense about God, I can even do actions about God, I can try to achieve things with God, but until I believe that God is this type of God worth trusting, I will not relate to God as someone who's going to save me. I will not relate to, someone as so, to this God as someone who is willing to die for me. I will not relate to this God as someone who loves me. Salvation looks like trusting that God is that type of God. God is this type of God, and because of it, I'm going to relate to God this way. The confessing, the obedience, the, 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 the doing the right thing, all these things you've been told are salvation, they aren't. All these things are signs that I've made that internal shift. The salvation comes in the trusting. Salvation comes in one thing, and we call it all different words. We've, call it, we've called it faith, confessing, all different concepts. It comes in This word, trusting. When I trust that God is that type of God, this is the God who is able, who was raised, this is the God who wants to raise me from the dead, this is the God who cares about me, and because of it, I'm going to change the way I relate. This God is my God now. This is my Savior. This is the one who's going to save me. This is what Christian salvation looks like. I trust the nature of this God found in the story of this God. 
And because I believe this childish, crazy, outlandish idea, the God of all creation became a human being and he lived for a few years and was killed and died and now he's gone. And some, for some crazy reason, I believe this. I'm going to, my believing is going to manifest, going to show a certain type of relating to this person. It's not calling this person God. It's not texting this God. It's I begin to operate in a relationship of trust with this God. And it's going to look like doing the right things. It's going to look like mental assent, believing the right things about God. It's going to look like investing my life, achievement things with God. It's going to look like all these other things if, if I trust this God. But if the trust is never in there, all the other things are just window dressing. The, the, the ring I wear every day means nothing if it's not real in the invisible place between me and my wife. It's just a symbol of something that's not even real. Until it becomes real. The baptismal waters are just water until you bring something invisible into that water. The bread and juice are just bread and juice until you bring something into that bread and juice. Would you stand with me this morning? And I know there's, if you have a lot of questions, I'm sure you do. Because I've, I've stepped on a lot, of, a lot of different ideas of salvation this morning. And I didn't do it to say that all of them are wrong. What I'm saying this morning is that those things by themselves are not what salvation is. There's so much more that goes on inside of this. And so what we're doing this morning is we're just laying foundation. We're, we're going back to the very foundational, the baby bottles of the Christian faith. So if you have more complex questions about it, you want to come talk to me. Hey, so you said this about confessing or this about salvation, and I want to, I want to understand that before. We'll sit down and talk about those things. I love questions. The only thing that you feel, the only way to ever go wrong, Grace Church, is to not ask a question, to not speak up, to not come talk to us, right? We're, we're available. And so as we've laid this foundation of salvation, we're going to come to one of the symbols that the, the Christian faith has held on to for 2,000 years. Because the mental ascent has no end with God, there's no end to thinking about God, to the right thinking about God, what the Christian faith has done is we give ourselves very simplistic basic childlike practices that in the doing in the tasting in the touching it informs all of our thinking and so the Eucharist the Lord's table is one of those things that we have we come consistently and we come to the table and we take this bread and this juice that's so childlike and so ordinary but inside of it contains the supernatural the special the non-ordinary understandings of the God that we have so Father prepare our hearts this morning as we come to you we come to you just as open and honest as possible. If there's any offense we have towards anyone or frustrations or just distractions, we lay them down this morning. We come to you with open hearts and open minds to connect to you in a deeper way. In Jesus' name. So I just want to invite all of you guys to come on down the inside aisles. Uh, we practice um, open communion at Grace Church. If you've chosen to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you are you're welcome to participate with us. We're going to wait for everyone to get their elements and we'll take it together.